Support the Amigos podcast and keep the Amiga goodness flowing for just a dollar a month. Visit our page at patreon.com slash Amigos podcast. Amiga, the first personal computer that gives you a creative edge. Amigos, the podcast about everything Amiga. Amigos is a proud member of the Throwback Network, your home for quality retro podcasts. And now, here are your hosts, Aaron Dowdy and John Bodovkar Schaller. Hi everybody, welcome to Amigos. I'm John. And I'm Aaron. And today we're joined by a very special guest. We're joined by David Pleasance. And uh, David, uh, if you could sum up sort of your your career in computers in about 30 seconds, how would you do it? Well, uh, my career in computers really was predominantly um, with Commodore. Uh, I joined Commodore in 1983 as a salesman. Uh, within four years, I was sales and marketing director. Um, and then I had an opportunity and... Um, got made general manager of Commodore Electronics Limited, which was the holding company for the group, based in Basel in Switzerland, and I was responsible for 37 countries there. Uh, two years I spent doing that, and then I spent one year as a vice president of Commodore Inc., the U.S. sales company, and then I returned back to the U.K. as managing director of the U.K. company. So a pretty diverse uh, and... Um, very wonderful career actually within Commodore. I was very blessed. Yeah, it sounds like you've really, you've really seen it all, um, especially from the, you know, you're the first person that we've talked to sort of from the corporate side of things. Um, what, what do you think makes selling computers, or at least when you were at Commodore, what made selling computers different then than the way that computers are marketed now? Well, I can only speak from my own experiences and the, the reason why I became successful and the UK became successful was that I took a view that trying to sell computers was, was really boring because at the end of the day, they're either just a piece of plastic or a piece of metal with some keys on it. And it's very difficult to wax lyrical about something that looks the way that they do. <laughs> so so um, I came up with the concept from now on, we, we don't sell computers, we sell dreams. And so I, I packaged the product and sold um, computers on the basis of what they would do for you. Uh, wonderful graphics, wonderful games. Uh, also, we justified, uh, at the end of the day, our, our target audience was fairly young children. But in order to justify the expenditure by the parent, we had to make certain that we included things like productivity software. That's why we had Deluxe Paint and we had um, uh, uh, word processing packages and so on, which actually justified the expenditure. We all know that the kids wanted the games, but so you know, at the end of the day, it's about how you get the parent to put their hand in their pocket. That's absolutely yeah. right. Every every kid, I think, used the excuse that they're going to use this machine for homework. Yeah. It's gonna it's gonna teach them to be a programmer. And for some people, it did. But for the majority, and definitely for us, we were all about the games. Yes, yeah, so. sir. That's, that's a fact, absolute fact. Um, 
So uh, I wanted to ask you just a, a couple questions that were submitted by our readers here. Um, this first one, and some of these are a little bit esoteric, so uh, feel free to answer them as you will. Uh, th this first question um, is about a game called Maggot Mania. And, he, and uh, Rob asks, why was Jason Perkins' Maggot Mania game specifically excluded from the buyout deal despite being written and published under the Commodore brand name? That's an incredibly difficult question for me to answer for a number of reasons. First of all, I've ne never heard of the product. I've never heard of it either. Me neither. Me neither. <laughs> um, I'm not sure what buyout deal um, the gentleman is referring to. Um, do you know what he, what he means by that? I, I Do you think that this might have been the, the SCOM thing? No, because Commodore has not published games since as far as i'm aware since about 19 not about 1985 yeah. or 86 oh so it would this have back. been would this have been the uh, wasn't there a buyout deal with atari with the with the rights to the amiga or something like that would it have anything to do with that or well, no because the amiga didn't even come out until 85 yeah that's a strange so one I, I, I'm really, I'm really at a loss to answer that because I've never even heard of it. I mean, I can tell you, for example, that that um, when I joined in June of June of 1983, and we not long after that we moved to a massive purpose-built um, assembly plant that Commodore. We bought a 10-acre site and built on it a, a, a an assembly and distribution center, and then a couple of years later under the wonderful direction of um, you know uh, some some amazing president they decided to close it all down <laughs> and i was charged with the responsibility of getting rid of all the all of the unwanted inventory of which there were hundreds of thousands of pieces of software vic 20 and 64 software mostly lots of it which had been published under the commodore name and hardly any of it, any of it had actually made any money mm. <laughs> well, I bet that wasn't much fun. <laughs> no, I mean, so it was ridiculous, but you know, hey, this is all part of life's rich tapestry. Isn't mm. it? Yeah. What well, What was it like, you know, in in a in a boardroom where you're working for a technology company and you have hardware that just isn't moving? I mean, is there panic? Are Are people, you know, getting ready to jump out of the window? I mean, how, what is that? What is that atmosphere like? Well, the thing is that with Commodore. They were, the, they were the purveyors of their own problems. I mean, uh, let me say this absolutely for the record. Um, as far as I'm aware, and I had 12 plus years with Commodore, it's the only company I've ever worked for that never, ever had any kind of plan. I'm not just talking about a bad plan. They never had a plan of any kind. Mm -hmm. And they used to stumble from one crisis to the next. It was absolutely unbelievable. <laughs> so were you basically throughout your entire tenure there just sort of in damage control mode? Well, yeah, I mean, but as I said, I, I kind of went around things because, I mean, the, 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 the fact of the matter is that we were so successful in the UK doing pretty much our own thing, even though you have to, you have to believe me, I tried so hard to get them to enforce replication of what we were doing in the UK throughout Europe 
and they wouldn't do so, which is the ridiculous thing. Because when you're successful doing something, the chances are that in, in, in countries that are similar to yours, you can replicate it. But um, th they were so, uh, so much doing their own thing. But in spite of that, we were hugely successful and hugely profitable in the UK. And, and, and we can in absolutely prove that because it was 16 months after the, the parent company went bankrupt before we in the UK had to declare bankruptcy because we had nothing left to sell. <laughs> now, That's unbelievable. Would you? I'm assuming that the that the UK uh, Amiga was the most successful of any of the European countries, or was that because I've heard uh, I've heard Germany mixed in there too? Would you say you guys in the UK were the were doing the were doing the most business? You know, of of the, of the rest of the, of the Europe. Yeah, there's. It's quite a funny story, really, because Mary Alley used to play uh, the UK off against Germany all the time. You know, it, it always used to say to us that oh, Germany was outselling us, and I actually always doubted that. And it wasn't until Colin Proudfoot and I decided that we were going to uh, launch a management buyout bid for the whole business. So, as part of our due diligence, we got all of the sales figures. And we'd been out selling Germany by a long way for for several years, um, but, and that wasn't really a surprise to me because you know we just did things in a different way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Speaking of Mediali and, and Irving Gould, um, what did the engineers want to do that that Medi and Irving wouldn't let them do due to penny pitching? Um, you know, just to save money, would they have uh, canned the hardware recycling models like the A five hundred plus and the A six hundred? and invested more in the next big thing, do you think? No, well, I, I think one of, one of the biggest problems is is that, um, you know, people like Dave Haney, who I'm very close with, um, he, he was working on products that um, everybody in within marketing had said we could really do with. And then the next thing you know, some one of the bosses would come along and say, stop doing it, cancel it. We're going to want you, we want you to do this. And it would be something that nobody ever asked for. Mm. And, and a good example, a good example of that was the was the the, uh, the sixty the, the Commodore sixty five, the games of GS. Now, now, why the hell would anybody in the time that that was being uh, considered? Why would anybody want a cartridge based games machine? Yeah, yeah. I mean that is absolutely ludicrous. And 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 you know he, he and Paul Lasser, who matter of fact Paul. Paul Lasser actually works with me at uh, Friend um, Software Corporation now, and I mean he he was he, he was a guy that was um, charged with to design the the, the 65 or 64 GS whatever you want to call it, but I mean I I, refused, I said you know why have you made it we we can't sell it I'm not going to even launch it it's stupid. So, do you think that this is just the fault of you know people in positions of power that didn't really understand how the game industry worked? Yeah, there was nobody after Jack left. I mean, I met Jack ever so briefly because I joined in June '83, and I, as happens, I went to the CES in January of '84, and and I wasn't sent there by Commodore UK. Uh, one of my customers kindly paid. He'd already bought his tickets when he found out he had to go to a, a family wedding or something. So I had it cleared by my boss at the time, and, and I luckily went to CES um, that somebody else paid for. 
And Jack Tramiel was, of course, on the Commodore stand at CES, so I did get to see him, albeit very briefly. And he was a pretty surly kind of guy sure. at the best of times. But after he left, there was nobody who ever had the drive to to um, you know to to make decisions and and plan to go forward and so on, and 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 it just went from one. As I said, it just stumbled from one crisis to the next, month after month after month, with the most ridiculous things um, being being produced and and good things being canned. So would you say that uh, Jack, for all of his flaws? I mean, he was the strong captain of the boat, right? I mean, because, I mean, if you look at the, and you touched on this with the uh, Commodore not having a plan, if you look at all the missteps, uh, I mean, they're baffling misstep. And as a, as a fan, back when this stuff was being sh- shipped, I was, like you said, the game machine, the the uh, the, the the Amiga 600, the, the various variants of the 500, they just seemed to be repeating the same, you know, they just went over the same tired hardware ground over and over is that just due to no one knowing you know what direction to take the company yeah it's exactly that and um and i think because because there was nobody um at the helm who had any knowledge but worse they had no interest they didn't research they didn't look and they didn't come and say what is it you actually want They'd just suddenly say, here, this is yours, go sell it, without ever asking if the market wanted it. And, and that, to me, is absolutely insane. Would just, you know, somebody's whim. Mm-hmm. But, but, but there, was loads, there was loads of decisions made. And, and let me try to give you a couple of examples, okay? Now, I have to be a little bit careful because, as you guys know, I am actually right in the middle of writing a book, and and there's a lot of things that are going to be in the book. That don't give away. Yeah, in don't, the open. Yeah, 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 exactly. We understand. But, but, but there's, a, but there's. A, I'll give you. I'll give you a couple of um, um, of nuggets, for example. Now, I, my opinion, Mehdi Ali's worst, one of his worst traits was that he he didn't know how to recruit people. He he. he he put himself in the hands of other people when it came to recruiting. He had no kind of, no kind of gut sense about who you employ. And, and let me give, let me put that in perspective. We needed a a new head of engineering. Now I went to I actually worked in the states in 1992, uh, January 92. I moved to I went to Westchester, and the first thing I was to go up and say hello to all the engineers. Because as far as I'm concerned, they're the only people that really mattered, you know? Mm-hmm. So I went up to see them. Now, get this, guys. That When I went up there in January of 1992, we had seven, seven Amiga engineers. We had 40, 40 PC engineers. Wow. What's in Westchester. <laughs> now... Now, what had happened was that Mary Ali recruited a new head of engineering. The guy that he recruited was an ex-IBM. So what does he do? He brings in 40 of his mates and gives them all a job. (laughs) Now, you tell me who in their right mind in 1992 would even manufacture their own PCs even if we wanted to be in the PC market, which was questionable anyway, you'd buy it from a Far Eastern company with your badge and your face shift plate on, 
on it, so it looked like yours. Yeah. But you certainly wouldn't make it and design it yourself. No. You reinvented the wheel. Yeah. So there's one good example, gentlemen. That's, that's insanity. <laughs> is, where, where would you put the peak of the Amiga as a platform? Would you say it was around 92 or maybe a little before? I think, it, I think in the UK, our peak was earlier than that. Our peak was probably around about 89. Not long after the 500 was launched, when we started putting all our bundles together, mm-hmm. um, and and I mean and and the prime example of that was the the now infamous Batman pack. That was you, wasn't and, it? And wasn't that your idea? That, yeah, yeah. Well, as I said, that's what I said right at the beginning. From now on, we don't sell computers; we sell dreams. Mm-hmm. And the Batman pack was the first um, uh, manifestation of that of that project. But if I tell you this, okay, and 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 this, everything I tell you, I promise you, it can be backed up. I went to see Ocean Software. Who were just they'd just come back from the states and they had paid one million dollars for the rights to use the name of the the upcoming movie on their game million dollars before they before they even started one bit of coding so i went to see them and i said okay guys i'm now going to put a proposition to you that you were either going to have the balls to go for or you're going to send for the men in the white coats to come and take me away Right. I swear to you, this is word for word exactly what happened. So they said, what is it you want? I said, I want to produce a, a pack. I said, what is it that you want? I said, you actually want the same as I do. You want more and more and more com- computers out in the homes. And they said, looked at me and quizzically. And I said, because, you know, for every computer that's in there, out in the home, and then you've got five or six games that you can sell to it. So the more com- computers out there, the better it is for you. So they had to agree with that. So I said, what I want to do is I want to put a pack together that features um, Batman. The fact that there is an Amiga 500 in there is actually going to be incidental. There'll be a picture of it, but we're hardly going to even mention that. It's all <laughs> going to be Batman, Batman, Batman. Okay? I said, and, and to do that, what I need from you, I need you to give me the Batman the movie in my bundle for two months exclusively before you sell it as a product over the counter on its own. Oh. I said, I want to pay you very little for it, and I only want to commit to 10,000 pieces. So the first thing they said was, send for the men in the white coats, <laughs> take me away, <laughs> which is what I was expecting them to say. But anyway, they said, look, David, we have, we have um, a couple of concerns. They said, the first concern is that um, we we believe our dealers are going to be upset if we give you that product for two months before they get it. And I said, yeah, they probably will be. I said, my guess is they'll be upset for about 48 hours because when they start selling a 400-pound product instead of a 40-pound product, I don't think they're going to be upset for very long. Right? So they had to agree with that. And they said, the other thing is, David, they said, we've estimated it is going to cost us a million dollars to produce the game. So that's a million we've already spent plus a million that we're going to have to spend. And they said, so we've worked out the number of the volume of sales that we're going to need to make. And we are afraid that this this action of yours will will, in, will affect that, those numbers. And I said to them, well, remember, I've got, a ma- I've got a massive advertising budget, much bigger than yours. And that's all going to be 
advertising this pack, which is your product. So anyway, they had the guts to go with it. And I'll always, always be thankful to them for that. They, they had the balls to go with it. Now, the net result, the net result is, let me just finish. Sure. The net result is that um, their dealers were upset for 48 hours and then they were starting <laughs> to sell lots and lots of, of Batman packs. Um, they actually, as a company, they sold five times the best volume they'd estimated. And I didn't take 10,000 pieces. From. I took 186,000 pieces because that's how many Amiga Batman packs we sold in 12 weeks to Christmas. Wow. Yeah. 12 that weeks. That had to have been the best week for the platform <laughs> in its history. <laughs> that is incredible. That is truly but incredible. That's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. But see, so that's what I was saying to you before about I'm going to Medi Alley and saying, for God's sake, why, don't we, why aren't we doing what I'm doing? Why aren't we doing it in Germany, in France, in Italy, in Spain? Mm -hmm. And I said, I said, first of all, we can get even better deals because the volumes of the software that we're buying will be increased, so we get an even better deal. When we do the packaging, we get it done in multiple languages. It's so easy. We can have one one TV advert for the whole of, the, of Europe just done in, in each of their own languages. So it's much cheaper. And they never did it. Were they just thinking about the Amiga as still, you know, strictly a competitor to Big Blue and Apple? I mean, were they thinking of it as a computer more than a games machine, which is where the money was for you guys, obviously, as a game a games machine? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't tell you what was in their thought process, yeah. because frankly I, frankly, I don't think they had a couple of brain cells between them, so I can't really answer that question. I, I just don't understand. We never had volumes of 2000s and 3000s and 4000s, never of any substantial volumes. We were terrible in the PC business, so what do you want? You know, why don't you play to your strengths? Right. You said you mentioned earlier that those fellas seemed almost disinterested or uninformed about what was going on. I mean, I, I, now stop me if I'm wrong here, but as I recall, I remember hearing that these guys were drawing the heads, the, the head guys at Commodore were drawing huge salaries. Did they just not give a damn? I mean, did, did they just? Yeah. Is that what it was? I mean, they just let it. They didn't care if it even went to the ground. I mean, did they care at all when it went down? Well, uh, what I can tell you is this: is that you know, I I was very close to Irving Gould. Um, for some reason, he seemed to really like me. But having said that, I tried so many times I can't even begin to tell you to to tell him all the things that were going wrong under Medi Ali's charge, and he would not listen. He kept saying to me, I don't want to know. I put the man in charge. He's doing it. Let it go. Mm. Let it go. Let it go. He did not want to know. Now, there's a man who owned 22% of Commodore. <laughs> That's unbelievable of course he that wasn't... he would be so disinterested. Was it just because he was so massively wealthy from other endeavors? That, that was my question. Is, uh, he was, was he an investment banker or something like that? I mean, he, had, he was giving out money left and right, right? No, he, he wasn't an investment banker, um, but he, he, he was a, a very smart businessman. And um, I, I'm, I'm not going to tell you now, but I, I know the story about how he made his fortune before he invested in the Commodore. No, it was Medi Ali who was the investment banker. Okay. Uh, Medi Ali worked for a company um, called uh, Dylan Reed. And um, uh, Irving Gill brought Dylan Reed in to do a, re a financial restructuring of, of Commodore. 
And and I know, for example, they got fifty million dollar loan from the Provident Group, um, uh, that, and and that was part of what Mehdi Ali um, actually uh, he engineered part of that. Um, but he, but he had no no background whatsoever in technology, and to be honest with you, seemingly no interest in it. Mm-hmm. Now here's another reader question. Um, he says that the the Germans insisted that they wouldn't sell an Amiga 600 without a hard drive, yet they did. So uh, how come the the A600 was available without a hard drive, despite the Germans insisting that it wouldn't sell unless it came with one as standard? Okay. Well, let me tell you the true story. I wasn't going to tell you this because it, it's going to be in my Uh-oh. book, but I, I'll tell you the true story anyway. <laughs> okay. Now, you, you may you may or may not know, but in the UK, because of the packs that we put together, which we also did on the Commodore 64, and we had some incredibly great packs with the 64, we kept the 64 selling two years beyond its natural use-by date in the UK. We're selling, we were selling massive volumes of it. But I, I knew that it was coming to an end. It was pretty obvious it was going to happen. So I went to, I went to Mehdi Ali and I said, Mehdi, what I need from you is something to replace the Commodore 64. And the best thing in the world would be if we can get a cut down, cost reduced Amiga, an entry level Amiga that you could actually buy and add on bits and pieces to it to make it up to full spec as you could afford it. So we are going for the same socio-economic group of people that were buying the Commodore 64 but now want something better. And I said, I mean, the 64 in the UK was selling for £199. And, and I said, we, could, we may be able to stretch up to £249 for the basic entry-level Amiga. Mm-hmm. And that was, the, that was the Amiga 300. And you called it 300 because it was a lower model than the 500, so there would be no no illusion. It made sense in anybody's <laughs> eyes. Absolutely, of course, it made sense, right? So anyway, we had a meeting in Germany in the German office. Medi used to hold his manage his European management meetings either in Germany or in my office in London. Every now and again, he would summon us over to New York, but that was quite rare. So we were actually at a meeting in Germany, and it would it had been discussed about the Amiga 300. So we left that meeting fairly confident that what we'd asked for. So the idea was a smaller case, uh, no numeric keypad because you get away with it. la di la di la okay? The next thing that we find out, we got delivered shed loads of Amiga 600s, hmm. which, we, and, and, and they cost more to make, for God's sake, than a 500. <laughs> They cost more to make, can you believe, right? It's the ultimate it, sort of it, crazy story. You know? <laughs> right, well, right. So, but immediately, the consumer sees A600, and they think it's an upscale model of the 500. Sure. So we killed, we killed all of our 500 sales stone dead overnight mm-hmm. for a product that wasn't as good as the 500. But the annoying thing is that all the first several thousand Amiga 600s that came in, on the motherboard it was written A300. Yeah. Wow. That that explains a lot, because when that came out, I was baffled. As a, as a customer, I thought, what are we, why is this so expensive? It was my thought. I mean, it didn't, and, and it, 
it, it was it wasn't really an upgrade at all, and that 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 explains it. That is, that is harebrained to say the least, <laughs> because I, it's a I, discount I rest, computer. I rest my yeah. case, gentlemen. And, but what you know, what I'm trying to say to you is that we had every opportunity to get things right, and then they went out of their way to screw it up. They went out of their way to screw it up. Now, how can you explain that? Yeah, yeah. All right. Here's a here's another question. This one I thought was interesting. So uh, there's a snippet of Commodore-related trivia on the IMDb page for Star Trek IV, okay? And it says that the computer that Scotty uses to show transparent aluminum was originally supposed to be an Amiga, but Commodore would only provide a computer if they bought it. Apple was willing to loan them the Mac, so that's how it got into the, the movie. Have you heard anything about that? Is there any truth to that story? What a strange tale. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, 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 I would... I would be very surprised if it wasn't true because um, <laughs> they were they were so no I mean they they were so so blinkered um, as a management team they were so short sighted um, I mean for example we tried so hard to get Matty Alley to try and woo people uh, in in the uh, in the professional software business uh, you know to write for Amiga and they wouldn't do so. Medi wouldn't go and meet anybody. He hated he hated people like Microsoft because he he couldn't he couldn't deal with them because he was he was he was socially and and and, and in my opinion uh, business wise he was inept mm -hmm. and he was he just felt uncomfortable in front of those sort of people. So yeah, they I mean it's a no brainer that you'd you'd lend a, a, an upcoming movie. A, a, you'd probably give them a bloody machine. Why the hell right. wouldn't you? It cost a <laughs> couple of couple hundred dollars and then you're featured in a movie it's a free it's commercial like, it's absolutely yeah. not rocket science is it yeah oh. so I, I don't i don't know for certain but i would be very surprised if it wasn't true i think it probably is true well, i mean it's, it's, of course we're here in the states we're back here in west virginia and uh getting amiga hardware and software here was almost impossible back when it was in the, the 80s and 90s it seems to me that the amiga was uh i mean this isn't we're not we're not breaking any new ground here when I say the Amiga wasn't advertised well here in the states. It was, I mean, I'm not gonna say it was unknown, but it was close to unknown. Uh, was there ever a plan to try to market to appeal more to the United States to try to get that market off the ground for Amiga? Or was it more worthwhile to focus your efforts where you knew you'd be successful in Europe? Um, well, I, I actually, as I told you, I went to America. I went um, as uh, vice president of consumer products in '92, and I actually got Amigas in, into. Uh, I got us trading again with all of the major retailers, including Sears, and I got Amiga into Sears. I even had a. I even actually had a designed a special pack just for Sears. Wow! I don't know if you know that. I didn't know right? that. Now, the reason I, I, I'm not going to go into details because it's in my book. Sure. But there was a very specific reason why uh, we were not trading in the UK, in the US, um, and that was that was somebody else's screw up that, uh, previously. But that will come out in the book, I promise you. Mm. But anyway, I sorted it all out, and I got us trading again with these people, including Sears. Okay, but then I went to Medi Alley and I said, right. My, for the moment, my job here is done. And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, I've now got us trading with everybody, all the big boys in the, in the US, but I do not want to sell them anymore. 
And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, Mehdi, you and I both know that we've got the Amiga 1200 to come out very shortly. And if I put any more 500s into these guys, they're going to be stuck with it. And, and they're going to not want to buy 1200s until they get rid of their 500s. So let's leave them. If they, I don't need to be chasing them. If they want to buy more in and I'm not chasing them, that's their call, right? But you know that when the 1200 comes out, it's going to take over from the 500 big time. So I said, as soon as the 1200 is released, I will come back to the States and carry on where I left off. Because that's good commercial business sense, right? And that's exactly what happened. But unfortunately, um, uh, in that between that time uh, and the 1200 um, coming out, and then I was, I was brought back to the UK because they were in financial trouble. Uh, and... Basically, Medi, Medi um, forced me to come back to the UK. I didn't really want to do that. Um, the reason being is that I'm, I'm a hunter. There are two types of salespeople. I'm a, I'm a hunter, not a farmer. And I built the UK. And then when I was given the, the 37 countries, um, export countries, to look after out of uh, Switzerland, it was fabulous for me. And then the U.S. again is a new hunting territory for me, so I didn't really want to go back to the U.K., hmm. but I was forced to. I was given no option, and basically on the basis that, look, David, you built it. I know you built that business. You are this is our strongest um, country, and we need to get as much revenue as we can flowing in the next few months. Yeah, that makes sense. We got one more question before we uh, talk more about your recent endeavors. This question comes from Chris. He says that uh, you mentioned on numerous occasions, including a talk that you did over at the Computer Museum in Cambridge, that Commodore was working on a super version of the Amiga using a more powerful processor and a 3D chip, and then Commodore went bust. What can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, I, I can tell you a lot about that, actually. Um, I already knew um, quite a bit about what was happening in development world. Why? But it wasn't until Colin Proudfoot and I um, started our due diligence that we were allowed to sort of officially go in and check out what was going on with the engineering. And we were shown, um, we, had a, we had a guy, uh, Dr. Ed Hepler, um, was working at Commodore. He was a very humble man with, with incredible uh, intellect. Um, and hardly anybody, know, I mean, everybody knows Dave Haney, he's, he's kind of the, the name, and R.J. Michael and that, you know, but uh, Ed Hepler, Dr. Ed Hepler was actually working on, um, and the, the project, with the chip uh, code name was Ombre, mm -hmm. right? And basically what it was, it was a uh, risk-based core, which had built into it a 3D rendering engine, it had was then state of the art 5.1 surround sound stereo built into wow. it. Wow! It had um, the chunky planar mo mode, which was moving big chunks of pixels around. I mean, they cobbled it together in a, on a software basis to show us, and you've never seen anything like it in your life. And let me tell you, there is nothing on the market that even comes close to it today. And we are talking about 1994. Wow. wow. So, I mean, was it was it solely because Commodore just went belly up that this thing never saw the light of day? Yeah, because the idiots at ESCOM let, let, just let everybody go. They said, bye-bye. I mean, the, what the a truth shame. is they never, ever, they never, ever wanted the Amiga in the first place. So I don't even know why 
they why they didn't just let us have it. They knew Colin and I wanted it. We we weren't bothered about you know the Commodore name, the CBM name. We wanted the Amiga. That's all we wanted. And and what they really really wanted, but didn't know what they wanted, was the was the CBM name, Commodore Business Machine. CBM was at one time as powerful a name as IBM mm-hmm. was. And for them to get all their PCs badged with CBM would have been really good for them because the distribution channels were all over the world. They were already set up, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but clearly they had no intention whatsoever of uh, of doing anything with the Amiga. And, And for us, that was the biggest tragedy. Yeah. yeah, it's frustrating. Yeah. Let me let me ask you one quick thing here before we move on. I've always wondered about this. The uh, the CD32. Um, I've got one. They're hard to come by over here. Uh, but I'd always heard it that before they got launched in America, something happened that they there was some sort of uh, trademarking issue or something with the technology that there was a dispute over. And there was warehouses full of these things in the Philippines. Uh, do you think? Do you know anything about this? And do you think the CD32 would have been a, a system that could have gotten a, a foot in the door in the states if they'd gotten a good release? Um, you're asking me, do I know anything about it? Of course I do. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 it, sound, it sounds terribly big-headed, and I don't mean that, but I know just about everything, right? Um, Again, it relates back to a story I was telling you earlier. When I remember, I said to you that Mediali could not—he did not know how to hire people. Um, he hired a, um, a head of manufacturing, and suddenly, it's um, we're going to close down the Hong Kong plant. Um, we're going to open a plant in the Philippines. Right now, my first business head question is why on earth would we want to build a factory that is six to seven weeks by sea to your nearest powerful market when we have no business i mean isn't that we had little business we had no business in asia at all we were not selling a product in asia anywhere why on earth would you want to build a somewhere factory in the philippines Right now, I'll tell you the answer. I shouldn't do, but I'm going to tell you the answer. The truth is that the guy that Mediali hired had been working in the Philippines, and he had a mistress there. Oh my gosh! Oh no! <laughs> so, getting back to your question about the CD32, what happened is that because because uh, that around that time, and and also you must remember that the CD32 was ultimately launched about five or six months earlier than it should have been. In, in my 12 years with Commodore, the CD32 was the first product that was actually planned and truly designed to be launched and done properly, right? Mm-hmm. To the point where I can tell you that I, I had a guy um, from Commodore US, a guy called Chris Ludwig, um, uh, who was a software guy, I had him come over to the UK and he was working directly for me and we were interacting with all of the software developers, all of the great games publishers and we had given them given them all CD32 development systems and the idea was that when we were ready to launch the CD32 we would have fabulous games to launch with it. Okay? Mm. 
Now, the bottom line is that we were coming up to the Christmas market. We've got massive sales already booked in for our 1200s for the packs and everything we were, we were um, selling for Christmas. All of our major retailers have got their orders in place. And then suddenly, Mediali decides he wants to launch a CD32 to get the extra revenue, mm. extra revenue on top of this 1200 sales, right? Which, of course, all it did was to take away from the 1200 Yeah, just sales. diluted the market. But the fact of the matter is that we hadn't got any software specifically written for the product. Mm -hmm. right? Launched with no, no titles. So, so what we got was, we launched it, but they were just ports from 1200. Yeah, um, that explains and, and, it. <laughs> right? Yeah, okay. Ter <laughs> terrible, terrible commercial decision. Okay, But getting back, back to the Philippines, because of the, the fact that the company was living hand to mouth financially, it hadn't paid for, uh, I'm not sure whether it was taxes in in, in, uh, in uh, the Philippines or whatever it was, but the Philippines government put a hold on all of the stock and all of the inventory. So that's, so there, there is truth in, in the story, but it's to do with, with the fact that Commodore had not paid some bills. Is there still, do you think, a warehouse full of uh, CD32s somewhere in the Philippines? <laughs> no, I have no doubt, very much. There's not an Atari landfill situation. I, I, remember, over there. I remember on eBay a few years ago that they that NTSC CD32 started coming on, and mm -hmm. I, I think they were clearing one out. Mm. That's what I always heard, the story I heard. <laughs> well, David, mm. let's, uh, let's leave the past and talk about the present now. Um, we are speaking with you on a um, sort of a browser-based video conferencing uh, app uh, through FriendUp. Um, tell us about what FriendUp is. Okay, friend. It's friend up stands for friend unifying platform, and um, this whole thing, it, what it actually is, it is a cloud and web-based uh, meta operating system, which is um, an agnostic system, which means that you can run on it. Uh, it has its own workspace, uh, and you can run on it. Um, Windows and Linux and Mac all together, and they will actually talk to each other, which is a first. Yeah. Um, and and conceptually, um, looking at it from a very simple point of view, let's say that you are a business that were established 20 years ago, 15 years ago, and when you set your <clears throat> business up, the software that you had available was probably the COBOL or Linux. Okay, so you've got your payroll and your payable all set up, but you want to get into the 21st century and you want to use Windows. God knows why you would, but let's <laughs> say you did, or you, or you wanted to use Mac, mm -hmm. and you wanted to get into a situation where you can talk to your salespeople on the, in the field, on, either on a smartphone or a laptop or whatever. Okay, with the system you've got, you can't do it. So you either throw that all away and start again, which cost a fortune, or with a product like Friend Unifying Platform, our product will sit completely transparently on top of what you've already got, and then allow you to run whatever software you want to run on top of it and alongside it. And of course, our product talks to and works on any device. Also, that's, that's a very simple explanation because 
in fact, we have many, many vertical markets that this product actually goes into. And But the interesting thing to your listeners and, and, and your followers is that, of course, this whole thing, the, the whole idea, comes from the original Amiga operating system. Hmm. Right? It's not... It's not called friend for nothing. Friend, of course, you know, the word amiga is the Spanish word for female friend. Right. Right. Now, the guy who has actually designed this, his name is Hogna Titlestad, Norwegian guy, quite a young man, an incredible young man, let me tell you, a a great visionary. He he apparently... um, when, when he was doing all of his studies, he, he did philosophy and, and what have you, he was using an Amiga all the time. And um, paradoxically, apparently I was his hero. Wow. Because I was in the magazines, I was the face of sure. Commodore, if you like. Sure. Uh, and and it was in, you know, it was in all the magazines and so on and so forth. So anyway, uh, what happened to me was that I went to, I was invited to be a keynote speaker at the Amiga 30 event in Amsterdam. Um, I was also invited to, to Neuss in Germany, and also I helped to organize the one in the UK. So when I got off the stage in Amsterdam, having just had my speech, the, the guys from, from Friend Unifying Platform approached me, told me what it was they were developing. And even though I, I have to be honest with you, when it comes to technology, I'm a complete dumbass. <laughs> I am really not. I am not a technically very good person. But for some reason, when they explained to me what it was they developed, I got it, mm-hmm. and, and I could see the potential of this product. Um, something else that it does, and, and we're actually working on it now. What we are talking on today, this right at this moment, this is called Friend Chat, and it is our version of a video conferencing system. And as you can see, the quality is phenomenal. It's very good. Um, uh, but it, there is a couple of very, very unique features about this. First of all, I can I can dr- drag and drop into this conversation. I can drag programs, games, apps that everybody who is on there can be eight of us, and they can all work on it and share on it together on screen. Wow, which is pretty unique. Yeah. The, the other thing is is that you guys were I, all i did was to send you guys a link you click the link and you're on board you did not have to register for anything oh it was marvelous Nada, it was it was wonderful right? to just click the link and have it start up <laughs> right so now just think about the commercial opportunities of this product alone friend chat mm-hmm. let's say for example you are amazon and you've got somebody browsing a product on your website. What you normally get is you get this little box comes up with somebody typing in, hello, would you like to talk to a representative? And before they've even finished it, you close the box and you've probably left the site anyway because mm-hmm. you get pissed off by it, don't you? Right. But you imagine being able to just suddenly open the window and there being in front of you is a real person speaking to you just like I am right now saying hi i know this product is anything you'd like to know and it's a very compelling product all on its own is this nobody you don't have to register you don't have to sign up for an app right is this is so this is obviously it's a commercially available product but is it going to be marketed to individuals or is it entirely sort of enterprise focused 
what what it is it we we are we are going to be launching it um, uh, as a um, uh, open source. Oh, okay. It's going to be it's going to be for everybody. Mm. Um, but uh, at the moment, what we I mean, we're very close to to release candidate three, um, which I'm guessing will be maybe even next week we can release release candidate three, and then after that will be version one. Which would be the first um, commercial product. Uh, the idea is that if anybody can use what we've got, um, and as long as they're not making money out of it, it'll be free. Mm -hmm. But the moment they the moment they want to to make to use it within business, then of course there's a, there'll be a fee payable for it. Um, the uh, the interest is already absolutely astounding. I mean, uh, it, uh, and I have to tell you that uh, we've now got. Uh, we've now got Paul Lasser, ex-Commodore, working with us. We've got Colin Proudfoot, who was my co-MD at Commodore, working with us here in the States. And in fact, uh, Hogner and Arna, who is our CEO, because they're, they're, they're Norwegian and the company is Norwegian-based, they're actually both in San Francisco as we speak with uh, our U.S. team. We've got four people in the U.S. already. And um, uh, the plan is that um, uh, we are hoping for a... Uh, a fairly chunky investment in the company round about June or July time, which will allow us then to go global, which is what we need to do. We're now ready to do that. Yeah. We've been developing the product um, uh, all the time since. Um, it's it's a, it's a staggering product. I, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't be involved if it wasn't, and I, I'm thrilled to bits it. This, gentlemen, this product will change history. Well, I think that it has the potential to do what Skype did, you know, for the present, you know, because Skype really changed everything as far as video conferencing. But now Skype is so bad, you know, it's just, it's 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 horrible to use. And this seems like it's poised to just sort of take the mantle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on the basis that, as I said, you can you can uh, drop and drag import um, uh, actual uh, programs into it and all work on it together that mm -hmm. in itself is absolutely unique yeah the collaborative but the fact, aspect <laughs> but the fact and of course you can multiplayer a single player game on it huh. i didn't think about biggest, that yeah yeah, the, yeah. Um, but but just imagine that one of the things that i one of my missions in life uh, and and this obviously applies to you guys is i want to bring under one umbrella using friend chat all of the um, around the world, all of the Amiga Facebook uh, groups that there are. Mm -hmm. You imagine all coming together. They still keep their own identity, but they can all work under one umbrella and they can talk to each other around the world and exchange games and everything, all using this system. Oh, I think that would be fantastic. Yeah, yeah. and I have to say, I, that, I, I I hadn't heard of this until I was I started doing a little research for the show and I, I picked up the, I signed up for the beta on it and was looking at it. And the potential for... You know, and I'm just—I'm not just saying this. I mean, I read—I read the bullet points, and I was—it's quite amazing. I mean, if it, if it could do everything it says, it's gonna be—it's gonna be something special. Because it's sure. like it's like Citrix mixed with like Virtual Box or you know Parallels or something like that mixed with it's, the collaborative yeah. nature of Google yeah. Google Docs. It's great. It's it's um, Citrix on steroids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's and and um, I mean Citrix that you can't you cut the, the you can't. Have the programs can't talk to each other, you know. In our system, you can. Right. You you can actually communicate with Mac and communicate. Windows can talk to each other. 
that's that in itself is amazing yeah yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> Well, David, I know it's it's late for you, but we can't we can't leave without uh, hearing about your book. You know, yeah. you've teased it several times. I'm already I'm already going to. I'm sure you can pre-order it. I'm going to as soon as we're done. That's what I'm going to do because I can't wait to hear all the nuggets that you weren't able to share with us on this interview. Yeah, we, we look. I haven't we haven't even finished the um, uh, the Kickstarter yet, so you you can't pre-order. Oh, uh, n- not 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 that I'm against that. Of course, I'd love it. <laughs> But the truth of the matter is, let, let me explain why I'm doing this, okay? Um, this is not about making money, although I'd, very, I'd be very grateful if, I, if it does make money. Mm-hmm. It's not about that for me. What it, this is about is that the truth of the matter is that I've got so much to tell. I want this to make as my legacy. And, and to be honest with you, in the last 18 months, so many of my musical icons have died and they're all my sort of age. It's so very I have true. this wake-up call. Yeah. I have this wake-up call that says, if I don't do it now, I maybe will never do it. So that's the, 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 the reason for me wanting to, to tell the story. I've got so many brilliant little nuggets that people are just going to love. Real stories about you know things that happened within Commodore. Some people are going to end up with very red faces. They'd be very angry. <laughs> Frankly, I couldn't give a toss because I'm only going to be telling the truth. And if they don't like the truth, then too bad. I like you know, it. That's, that, that's, my, that's my attitude. Um, I am getting people to, um, to collaborate writing with me on the simple basis that I want more than my own perspective on certain things. So, for example, let me give you an example. We, we, we briefly talked about some products that were... Uh, being uh, developed and then were canned and then products were suddenly asked to be developed that had never been wanted. I've got Dave Haney going to be writing about that. I bet there's a lot of, I bet there's so much stuff that nobody's ever heard before. (laughs) Well, exactly. So, so Dave is going to be writing that. Now in the UK, we launched this product called the Amiga 1500, which have you heard about that? Yeah. I don't know anything about it because actually it was not in my not in my field because I was a consumer products guy, and the Amiga 1000 and above was not in my range. Um, but the guy who actually did put that together, Kieran, who used to work for me, he's going to write and tell the story about that, how that came about. So it's really more it it's really more than just a tell-all book where you know you you air a bunch of dirty laundry. This is going to be. Uh, you know, for fans of the platform that are interested in the hardware and the stuff that never came out, this is going to be a treasure trove. Oh, yeah. I, I, I really want this to be something that people do, really do treasure, and that's a very good word. Um, because, I mean, I, I'm extremely fortunate in, in that, you know, I'm unique in the fact that I had that long a career with the company because most people didn't last that long. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and my career expanded so many countries. So I've got a real insight into a lot of the things that were going on that nobody else has. Or, or if they had, they've long left the company and probably not even remotely interested anymore. But, you know, from my point of view, this is a legacy. I'm extremely proud of the things that happened. Um, certainly, you know, under my tenure, I'm very proud and my team were fantastic. Um, so I just want to get it out there and let people know the real truth, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I for one can't wait. <laughs> I love this sort of thing, and uh, you know, uh, it's such an interesting—I don't know—tragic sort of tale that uh, uh, 
it'll be very interesting to see it all go down. I'm I'm, I'm very excited personally <laughs> for the for the book. Well, David, it's been a pleasure to chat with you. Uh, thank you for taking the time, especially you know being ten o'clock at night in the UK, almost eleven o'clock now. Um, we really appreciate it, and uh, we wish we wish you the best of luck with Friend Up and and your new book. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure, gentlemen, and say hi to all of you, all of your listeners. Um, please buy my book. <laughs> buy his book. <laughs> all right, David. Uh, We'll see you next time. We'll catch it. Okay. Take uh, care, guys. Bye-bye. Adios. Bye-bye. Adios. Bye-bye.